Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If, like me, you watched the recent coronation of the king, Charles III, you too may have been moved and in awe listening to the wide variety of music that was performed during the ceremony. One musician in particular enjoyed not just one, but two of his pieces being chosen for the service itself. And that composer was William Byrd. 2023 is the 400th anniversary of his death. Now, the choice of William Byrd's music for the ceremony was, at least according to some media and social media, highly significant. But why? What is it that makes Byrd and his music remarkable? And why might some people suggest that the music was traditional, while others called it an interesting choice? The answers, as they so often are, can be found in the past, and I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Carrie McCarthy to give them. Dr. McCarthy is Associate Professor of Musicology at Duke University, and her latest book is a biography of Bird, published by Oxford University Press. It won the American Society of Composers, Authors and Publishers, or ASCAP, Nicholas Slominski Award for Composer Biographer of the Year. You're going to hear a few pieces of Bird's music in our recording today. And for that, I'd like to give special thanks to the following people. Leon Bourbon, the Bird Ensemble, and the Cardinals music directed by Andrew Carwood. Dr. McCarthy, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. It's an honour to speak to you and it's wonderful to be doing so in this anniversary year and having a chance to talk about William Byrd. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So let's start at the very beginning, as they say. Very good place to start. Let's think about what we know about Byrd's early life. I know that your work indicates that it's perilously little, but I wonder if you could at least set us in the context of when he was born and what England was like musically at that time and how changing monarchs may have been having an effect on that musical world. So Byrd was born in 1539 or 1540 in London. He was from a London family that was very much involved in music, and a couple of his brothers were choristers, 
and one of his sisters married an organ builder, so very much involved in instrument building. And they were also woodworkers. In fact, many of his relatives belonged to the Fletcher's Company, which were traditionally the guild of arrow makers, people who made bows and arrows. But by the 16th century, they were also building harpsichords and vials and organs. And there was this strong tradition of craftsmanship in Bird's family as well. But the actual time he was born, right around 1540, which was the year that the very last monasteries in England were dissolved. That was really the end of the whole medieval monastic system. In fact, Bird's teacher, Thomas Tallis, a composer a generation older, was employed at Waltham Abbey, which was the very last monastery to go was a personal favorite of Henry VIII, who was king in 1540. And Henry had a hunting lodge there, and he would go enjoy some quiet a little ways away from London. So Waltham Abbey, with its organist, Thomas Tallis, was the very last monastery to go, and that was the year Bird was born. He was born just as the old order stopped. And he belonged to the first generation of composers who didn't remember England before the changes, who didn't have that continuity with the pre-Reformation world. He was essentially born into a kind of chaos. And the earliest document we have of him as a boy, as a chorister, this is something that's come up quite recently, was at Windsor Castle around 1548-49. It turns out there's a document that they list all the little boy trebles who are singing in the choir, and one of them is Bird. Now, they only give the surname, so it might not be our composer, but judging from the age, judging from his later career, it makes quite a bit of sense that this would have been our bird. And he shows up there at Windsor Castle in the documents probably from around 1548-49. And the reason we have that document is this was right after Henry died in 1547, and of course, King Edward came to power, and he had many advisors who were very strongly Protestant and finally wanted to reform things properly. This was their chance. And so the first thing they did is they went through every single choir in England, every single choral foundation, the big ones and the small ones, and they named every single musician in every church. Because what they wanted to do was make sure that there was absolutely no prayer for the dead going on. There were no chantries, there were no devotions to saints. All of these choirs were completely in conformity with the National Church. The legislation was called the Chantries Act, and this was a plan to regularize all these choirs. And the first time we see Bird named is in connection with that. So he was born into this drastic time of change, and unlike Talus and his other teachers of the previous generation, he never knew the old world, he never knew that stability which I think very much affected the way he thought about music and the way he composed when he started to get older. That's fascinating. It's like the generational change between those of us, to show my age, who know what it was not to have a mobile phone or an email address and those who can't possibly imagine a life outside of the internet. Let's think then about Bird's development in this period of time. Perhaps the most helpful thing we can do now is to hear some of his first known composition for voice, which is a collaborative work. This is Similis Illis Fiant, also known as In Exitu Israel, from the Cardinal's Music, directed by Andrew Carwood. In 
when Bird first appeared as a composer, he was roughly 15 years old, working with established composers on this piece. So how do we explain a teenager being in this position? And what do you think this piece of work says about the world that he was becoming part of? This piece was written when Bird, as you said, was around 15, 16 years old. And this was during a very brief revival of Catholic worship, Catholic music. This was under Queen Mary in the 1550s, when English choirs took a very sharp swerve back into traditional practices. All of a sudden, all the music was in Latin again. All the services were very traditional again. And of course, they had got rid of all the old books and all the old music just a few years earlier. They'd quite literally been instructed to burn it. All these old service books, all this old music has to be burned and destroyed and defaced. So when Queen Mary came to power in the 1550s, and as a Catholic said, let's restore these old traditions, musicians really had to scramble to get things ready. And it was an exciting time. It was also a fairly frightening time. Of course, there was a lot of repression of dissenters. Mary is famous for burnings at the stake and so forth, and there was certainly a lot of tension in the air. But there was also a lot of creativity. And I think what we see here is Bird working with some older musicians who clearly needed to get this music ready as quickly as possible. This particular piece in Exitu Israel is for Easter. In fact, it's for the vigil on the night before Easter. So a very big ceremonial service, very important moment of the year. And clearly the day was coming closer and they needed to have this big piece. And so they divided it up among three composers and they gave each of them a few verses to set. And Young Bird was one of them. It captures the sort of urgency and excitement of having everything change yet again. And I also like this piece because it captures something about Bird that we keep seeing for the rest of his career. We're going to see this for the next 60 years, is that he was always working together with people. So many of his big projects were collaborations. When he first started publishing music, started printing music, he didn't do that alone. He did that together with his teacher, Thomas Tallis, who was more experienced. When he was in middle age, he was corresponding back and forth with other composers, including one on the continent, Philippe de Monte, who worked for the Habsburgs, and exchanging motets with him. When he got more involved in composing keyboard music, he published this big collaborative collection, now with two younger composers. His whole career, it's really a story of working together with people, which we don't see with every Renaissance composer. But with Bird, every important moment in his life, we see other musicians there, we see other composers, we see a kind of community being built up around him. I love that the earliest piece we have from him is a group collaboration. It's so important, isn't it? Because we have such an idea of the genius as a lone figure, and yet most great things are collaborative works. Yes. <laughs> and tell a story that files off all the other people just to make it about one name. But actually, these things are done by learning from others and working from others. So you've mentioned a few times that Bird was a pupil of Thomas Tallis, the composer. And Tallis had been employed in the Chapel Royal since the 1540s. He's still there when Elizabeth became queen. How would you describe Tallis's influence on Bird's work? That's such a big question. I think Bird, by nature, was a very nostalgic character. I think he liked to feel a connection to the past. 
And I think working with an older composer like Talis gave him that kind of connection. It's funny because I've heard people talk about Byrd as a kind of conservative composer, that he liked to hang on to traditions from the past. What I really see with Byrd is more a sort of nostalgia, almost for something idealized. While an older composer like Talis had actually lived through all these changes, Byrd had this almost idealized view of certainly what Catholic music ought to look like. And you see something like that in these three masses that he composed that, unlike the masses by Talis and some of those older contemporaries, he didn't base them on pre-existing material. He didn't use popular songs. He didn't use plain chant. He was creating these things as almost platonic forms of these ideal masses. And he only wrote three, while some Catholic composers would famously Palestrina said that if he needed to crank out a mass every 10 days for his patrons, he could. Well, with Byrd, there was something very idealized. And I think for him, someone like Talis was really a connection to the past. Well, if we take Byrd back to this early phase, say he's in his early 20s, he's been appointed as an organist and a master of the choristers at Lincoln Cathedral. And then we have this moment where the dean suspends his salary. And it might be helpful if we hear one of the pieces that Byrd composed for the keyboard at this time. This is Clarifica May, performed by Leon Burbin. And when we've listened to it, could you tell us why the dean didn't like it? of keyboard music like this clarificame, this goes back to a very old English tradition of organ playing, which was basically improvisation. And this is something that Byrd would have learned from Talis and from other older composers. Because before the Reformation, what church organists were doing a lot of the time was taking these traditional melodies, these plain song or chant melodies, and improvising on them to fill up time in the service, in some cases just to take the burden off the singers. So the organist would take these snippets of melody and elaborate on them as long as he needed to fill the time. And some of these pieces could become very complicated, very beautiful. And as soon as you hit the Reformation, of course, the most important thing in the services is preaching the word, proclaiming the word, hearing scripture, hearing sermons, teaching the people something useful. And this kind of noodling and creativity, especially on the organ, that doesn't teach anyone anything. (laughs) It's pure vanity. And this is something that especially the more austere reformed clergy could not stand. So certainly when Byrd was at Lincoln Cathedral, he'd clearly started playing the organ in this very sort of improvisatory, abstract, pre-Reformation style, and they shut that down. In fact, the dean of the cathedral told him, from now on, you are to give the note for the singers and then go sing with them. None of these shenanigans. And Byrd, being a stubborn sort of person, refused, and they cut off his salary for most of a year. So these things had real financial repercussions, and certainly a keyboard style he would have learned from Talis that he loved to play in, that was not politically desirable anymore. In fact, he got in more trouble for that than he got in for any of his vocal music. 
So there's a sense that with this religious change, which of course, as you say, is a political change as well, music delivers words and music doesn't have a sacral quality in of itself anymore. And it cannot be allowed to have that. Is that right? That's very well put. I think some of the reformers in England almost felt threatened by wordless music because it's not clear what message it's necessarily giving. (laughs) People might take some message from it that's not approved. It's also giving the musicians a kind of power within the service. And you get this both with elaborate organ music and also with the pre-Reformation styles of singing. A piece would go on for 10 minutes or 15 minutes in this very beautiful abstract way. It's like the kind of decoration that you might see in stained glass windows or in illuminated manuscripts. It doesn't necessarily teach anyone anything. It doesn't have any didactic or pious or edifying content in itself. It just gives this kind of contemplative experience. And the moment you have wordless music or these abstract images, it's out of your control a little bit. You can't control what the listener or the viewer is experiencing. And even before the Reformation, there were some people in England who did not like this kind of abstract music. In fact, one very famous story is the Renaissance scholar Erasmus came to England as a distinguished guest of various academics there. And he went to some of the cathedrals and monasteries and listened to the singing. And he said, that this is ridiculous. They're just spinning this music out for 15 minutes. These services go on and on. This is time that could be used for study or for doing charity or something else useful. So there was this kind of criticism all along. But after the reforms, it became especially acute, I think. And Bird was very much part of this old tradition of more abstract music, especially as an organist. And that was something that made some people feel very threatened. So we've got this distinction between utility and beauty as the purpose of music. Given that some people have said that Tallis was an unreformed Roman Catholic, do you think that Bird's music reflects a place on the religious spectrum at the time? Or is it just what you've talked about, this kind of nostalgia, this learnt nostalgia from his tutor? One difference between Tallis and Byrd is that we don't know whether Tallis remained a Roman Catholic. He certainly stayed with the Chapel Royal, working for the Queen, essentially until he retired, until he was too old to work. But I think you're definitely right in saying it was a continuum. You have certainly some tendencies in Byrd that are more conservative, this kind of nostalgia, this kind of going back to a tradition. Byrd himself didn't start writing explicitly Roman Catholic music until he was a bit older. Ironically, until he was part of the Chapel Royal, until he was working full-time for Elizabeth, you have this kind of reaction, this kind of radicalization, And he starts composing these very Catholic motets and eventually, of course, masses. But even with Byrd, he didn't come from a recusant family. There are no signs that he was rebelling against the state church when he was younger. In fact, we have one anthem, one song from Byrd, probably in his 20s, that uses an English version of a text by Martin Luther, of all people, and that the text goes, From Turk and Pope, defend us, Lord. That's one of the lines in there. Very explicitly not recusant, and this piece of music is attributed to Mr. Bird. So I think that that was something that developed gradually, his Catholic allegiances. And in some ways, 
he was getting there musically before he was getting there ideologically. And of course, continuity with older styles for a composer, for an author, a painter, anyone really, isn't necessarily the same thing as deliberate rebellion, as being a recusant, as speaking up against the established religion. I think that the nostalgia came first and the rebellion in some ways came later. Mm. That's fascinating. It's sort of, today they would say, belonging before believing. Yes. I'm Tristan Hughes, host of The Ancients from History Hit, where twice a week, every week, we delve into our ancient past. I'm joined by leading experts, academics and authors who share incredible stories from our distant history and shine a light on some of antiquity's great questions. Was the Oracle of Delphi really able to see into the future? The Oracle certainly operated, certainly gave many thousands these prophecies. And they were taken seriously in most cases. What can be discovered from lost civilizations? There was a lot of volcanic activity. And in one of these sites called Quicoco actually got covered with volcanic flows. And the early archaeologists, they used dynamite, you know, to get at this archaeology. And was King Arthur actually real? Ambrosius is far less well known. It looks as if he has got a significant impact on the creation of the Arthur story itself. You can expect all of this and more from the Ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Where Lincoln Cathedral did allow Bird some leeway was in his role as a choir master. So can you describe how he began to forge a new standard in choir music and whether it was well known? Yes, in some ways, the Reformation in England was quite a good thing for the cathedral choirs because so much of the musical talent was concentrated on these relatively few churches. We saw Bird as a young chorister being caught up in the whole dissolution of chantries and of these private musical foundations. And there were relatively few choirs left by the time that had happened. You had, of course, the Oxford and Cambridge colleges, which Bird, as far as we know, was never involved with. He wasn't in that whole academic world. But you had the colleges. You had, of course, the royal private chapel, because at this point, the king or queen was the only one allowed to have a private household chapel. That was quite a big change. And you also had the cathedrals, which 
Queen Elizabeth deliberately went out of her way to preserve the cathedral choir. She said, this is where I want this tradition to keep going. There was some pressure from her more Protestant advisors to shut down cathedral music, get rid of the choirs, to dismantle the organs. But she said, no, I want the cathedrals to be these places where we sustain this high standard of music. And someplace like Lincoln, where Byrd was very lucky indeed to get his first major post there as a young man, they still had the resources to cultivate this kind of singing. And one of Byrd's jobs was to find the best young choristers and train them, and to get together this group of boy trebles, of boy sopranos, who were going to be trained as the next generation of professional singers. So clearly there was this kind of stability they were still going for. And we have documents of Byrd at Lincoln Cathedral traveling around the surrounding towns, sort of talent scout for the best young singers. He had instruments, musical instruments, viols and keyboards and stuff to teach the boys how to play, just as nowadays choristers will also have tuition on instruments. So we see Byrd very active there, and really the cathedrals were one place where the English musical system was still very healthy. And of course, even now, in any cathedral city in England, you can still show up in the late afternoon and hear Evensong, sung by an excellent professional choir. And you can still hear these young boys, and of course now girls as well, being trained as choristers. And there's a kind of continuity there. And a lot of that is thanks to Elizabeth I, who really went out of her way to say, yes, we may be a reformed country now, but we want to keep this tradition in these particular places. And we see Byrd right at the beginning of that as this young choir master at Lincoln. So he was lucky, and I think we were lucky as well to have him there. Absolutely. Now, meanwhile, in private, Byrd was exploring other music, wasn't he? You'd call it private music in your work that Byrd and other composers were writing. What was this? <laughs> well, one of the rules about cathedral music under Queen Elizabeth was that everything had to be in English. It could be fairly elaborate in some places, although some of the clergy didn't like that, as we saw at Lincoln, there was some argument, some back and forth about just how complex the music could be. But it all had to be in English. And Byrd, already early in life, already during these years as choir master at Lincoln, was experimenting with bigger music, with Latin words. Now, this was something more traditional. This went back to the whole pre-Reformation tradition of these big motets. It was also something more international. And we already see this when he starts publishing his music. The first thing that he publishes is a big book of Latin motets with Talus. And what he says at the very beginning in the preface is, this is going to make us internationally famous. He wasn't very modest at this stage in life. He says, this is going to make English music famous beyond the boundaries of our country. Because one thing about an anthem or a service in the English language, that's not going to do much for Italian singers, for French singers. They can't sing it in their churches. They're probably not going to understand the words very well. There's not a market for it. So in some ways, I think Bird's decision to start composing things in Latin was as much a sort of marketing choice, a sort of effort to make things a little bit more cosmopolitan, a little bit more universal. Some of these early works, like these Latin motets, Bird is also experimenting with musical sounds, with musical textures. He's doing things 
that he wouldn't necessarily have been able to do in a cathedral choir where rehearsal time was limited. You had to have a certain amount of clarity being able to hear the text. Here, some of these more experimental works, they have eight parts, nine parts, um, this extremely thick textures. And we get the sense that Bird is experimenting with almost the extremes of what human voices can do. Well, let's listen to one of these Latin motets that Bird composed in private. And let's listen out for some of those things you've mentioned. This is Dominus Quis Habitat. This is performed by the Bird Ensemble. What should we notice from that? What made and makes Bird's work unique? One thing we can hear in a piece like this is Bird just experimenting with different musical sounds, different textures, different combinations of voices. This motet has three low bass parts. Now, bass singers can be hard to find. The range of the human voice tends to go along a sort of bell curve, a little bit like height. You have a few very short people, a few very tall people, and most of us are somewhere in the middle. So to find low bass singers who have this kind of deep, resonant bass singing voice, that was and is fairly difficult. And here we have Bird composing a motet that has three separate low bass parts, and you can hear in this music they're growling down there and then making these sort of low, rich, complex sounds. This is a sound that he wouldn't necessarily have got to make with his cathedral choir which was sometimes short of personnel. We see him traveling around trying to recruit singers to keep the numbers up. With some of these early experimental works, I don't know if he ever actually got them performed. We don't have recordings, so it's hard to tell, but I don't know whether he might have heard them in his head with these three bass parts. It would be like a composer writing something for three cellos or three double basses there at the bottom of the sound. Whether he actually got the singers he needed to make this sound, or whether it was something he was just experimenting with in his own inner ear, writing this to see how it would work. So even as he was churning out all this very practical music for his post at Lincoln Cathedral, we can hear him doing things that are more speculative, more imaginative. It's amazing to think that we live in an age where technology allows us to hear something that the composer himself may not have heard. It's extraordinary. So let's move Bird on a little bit. In 1572, he became a gentleman of the Chapel Royal, receiving royal patronage. Given that he's had this moment of sort of uncertainty with the authorities at Lincoln, first of all, how did he get such a high-profile job? 
And once he'd got into this position, how do we explain the failure of his first published works? <laughs> the way to get a post in the Chapel Royal was generally to have someone else die. As morbid as that might sound, these posts in the royal household chapel were generally for life. Of course, someone could retire if they were genuinely too old to carry on singing or playing or touring with the itinerant chapel. But normally, the way you got a post was to wait for someone else to kick the bucket. And in Bird's case, he was replacing a composer named Robert Parsons, who uh, tragically fell into a river in January and drowned at a quite young age. While Byrd was an ambitious man, I don't think he pushed Parsons into the river. I don't think there was anything sinister going on. But Byrd got this post when one of his colleagues there died. And of course, if you read between the lines, what that means is that Byrd had already been in the running for quite a while. He'd already been interested. He'd had his name mentioned there, he'd put his hat into the ring, so to speak, and as soon as there was a vacancy, he was snapped up. He left Lincoln Cathedral. Interestingly, he signed a sort of contract when he left Lincoln saying he would keep sending them music. He would keep sending them songs, or anthems, and services. So clearly he was already valued there as a composer not just as a choir trainer, not just as a director and as an organist, if he didn't play too outrageously elaborate stuff, but he was valued specifically as a composer. And the cathedral said, we'll keep paying you essentially part-time salary if you'll keep providing us with new music. He went to join the chapel, which was a very different sort of job than his post at Lincoln Cathedral, because one thing to remember about the Chapel Royal is that it was not a building. We think of a chapel as an architectural space. The Chapel Royal was a group of musicians. And in fact, they made music during the time of Elizabeth, 20 or 30 different buildings. Elizabeth had various palaces, various homes that she'd travel between. And she was on the road for at least half the year. And the chapel would travel with her. So they weren't always in one place. And in some ways, it was a very challenging job because Bird was expected to work as a professional singer, to probably work as an organist as well. At least he claimed that he was the Queen's organist in various documents, and also to compose new music. And he was on the road a lot of the time. In fact, in some ways, life in the Chapel Royal was closer to life as a modern touring musician. You spend a lot of time in airports, you're always singing in different countries and different venues. In the case of Bird, they didn't really travel outside England. It wasn't like some of the European Renaissance royal chapels, they went from country to country. Bird and his colleagues basically stayed within England and mostly within southern England. But it was a complicated job because it involved lots of travel as well. Let's hear another piece of music. This is Ad Dominum Cum Tribulare, which is performed by the Cardinals Music, directed by Andrew Carwood.
Now, like many of Bird's works, the title of this piece is scriptural. It comes from the first line of Psalm 119, 120, depending on how you count them. In my trouble to the Lord I cried and he heard me. And this was composed in the 1570s. It directs my attention to the fact that as we move into the next decade, this sense of Bird moving towards Roman Catholicism becomes more pronounced and Bird's Catholic faith come under greater scrutiny. Could you give us a sense of the pressures he faced from the authorities and why it was becoming particularly acute in this decade? So the 1570s, right when we get this wonderful piece of music, that's when we start to see Bird getting in some trouble for unauthorized Catholic views. We start to see people investigating him right around the end of the decade. We see people coming to his house and starting to do searches, looking for various papers that might be controversial. Interestingly, we see members of Byrd's family, but by now he's married, has children, getting in trouble for not going to Church of England services, which was, of course, the definition of recusancy, of being a recusant, was refusing to go to the official services of the state church. Now, Byrd himself wasn't in as much trouble for that, because, of course, as a member of the royal chapel, he was at Church of England services all the time. He was singing them. He was worshipping in the presence of the queen, so that wouldn't have been a way to catch him. But we see them searching for undesirable books, undesirable papers. It was noticed that he had connections with prominent Catholics, some people who were allegedly even involved in plots to depose the queen and to change the succession and bring England back to the Catholic Church. So things really heated up around the 1570s, just as he was composing this, in many ways, more emotionally intense music. As you mentioned, even the title was crying out to the Lord in tribulation. And this is exactly when Bird starts to compose these motets. They're motets of lament, of lamentation, of almost of outrage in some ways at these injustices, at these troubles, these tribulations. And it's interesting that we see him composing this kind of music, this kind of lament and rage, before we see him composing actual Catholic service music. He didn't start writing actual masses until 15 or 20 years after this. That's something that came later, actually composing for the underground Catholic community for their services. What we see first is this kind of stuff where he's just crying out at the injustice of the whole situation, really, and this kind of lament. Of course, music of lament was nothing new. There was a very old tradition in the Renaissance of certainly composers writing sad music, writing music of grief, writing music of lamentation. This isn't something that Bird came up with single-handedly. This is an old tradition that he was going back to, but it's something that just seized his imagination. And by the 1580s, ironically, by the time he was really established in the royal chapel and had become a favorite of the queen, you have whole books of music by Bird where two-thirds of the titles of these songs, these motets, are just grim and sad, and he's clearly not happy about something. And also Bird being a somewhat melancholy composer by nature, he was really at his best in some ways when he was writing sad pieces. So it's something that seemed to fit him well by temperament, and I think 
think he realized at some point, yes, it's not sustainable to have two thirds of the music I write be sad and bitter. But that was a phase in his life that I think, in a creative sense, was very important for him. This phase of lament and rebellion, I think, was a phase in a creative sense that was important for him. And we can see him almost working through these ideas, working through these emotions, and eventually moving on to other things. Do we see in his work an attempt to sort of prove himself as a loyal, sufficiently Protestant Elizabethan courtier? I think it is important that he never stopped composing music for the court. He never stopped composing music for the Church of England. That's a place where he really differs from a lot of other English Catholic composers. Of course, some of Byrd's Catholic contemporaries left England entirely. They went to the continent, they went to Rome, they went to Brussels, they went to Spain, they went to some place where they didn't have to deal with having to compose in these styles and for these organizations they didn't agree with. While Byrd never stopped composing for the Church of England, and in fact, some of his most wonderful Anglican music was composed relatively late in life. We have something like the famous anthem, Sing Joyfully. That's early 17th century. That's from around 1605. It was composed for the christening of one of King James's little children. And it's a wonderful anthem that's still sung in English cathedrals. So he was still willing to create this kind of stuff. He never made a clean break the way some other composers did or felt they had to. And yet there is this sense that in his 50s, he enters a sort of semi-retirement that he's working with patrons, he's writing, it seems, to please himself. This is the period in which we get the masses you've mentioned for three, four, and five voices. Do you have a sense that his style changes? And is it to do with who he's choosing as his patrons or who's choosing to patronise him? All of a sudden, starting in the 1590s, he was writing for much smaller groups of singers. As soon as he started writing real Catholic liturgical music for real services, these, in most cases, underground services, clandestine services. He was writing for much, much smaller groups. This usually would have been one singer per part, so not these big rows of cathedral choristers in their robes and their choir stalls. These would have been in small groups of people, also in very small spaces. Some of the houses of his Catholic patrons he composed for, they would have had very small house chapels, these very intimate spaces. In some cases, there weren't even chapels. They just sang in small domestic spaces. You would have had maybe a drawing room or a dining room that once a week you lock all the doors, you set someone outside to make sure the police aren't coming, and you put out a little altar and you say mass. So this music would have been sung in a lot of cases in the same spaces where people would have sung madrigals or secular songs, almost around the table, so to speak. And it's in a much more intimate style. And you have music for as few as three voices. In fact, Byrd wrote an entire mass, an entire Latin mass for only three voices, which is something that really no other Renaissance composer did. He was thinking on this very small scale. In some ways, he was forced to by circumstances but it also, it brought out a side of him that in some ways went against his personality. We saw him when he was younger, composing in eight or nine parts or writing all this big cathedral music. He was a bit of a maximalist. As we know, he was told to tone down the organ playing, make things shorter, make things simpler. 
But around the age of 50, when he was forced to make things simpler, it brought out something new in his musical style. It brought out a sort of sweetness, something like the three-part mass. There's a kind of sweetness and a kind of purity there that I think we wouldn't have heard from him if in some ways he hadn't been forced into it by circumstances. Not that I think Byrd was happy to have to sing these masses in these clandestine little spaces. In fact, I think Byrd would be delighted to know that a movement from one of his masses was sung at a coronation this year in 2023. I think he would have been surprised and probably delighted to know that at this point, this could be heard and this could be enjoyed in a great building but with an audience of thousands. But at the time, it was something very secret, something very private. And I think that brought out something in his style that wouldn't have been brought out otherwise. Finally, then, can we talk about the use of the music in the coronation that you've just raised? We've got his Preventas, O Lord, and his Mass for Four Voices, both featuring in the ceremony. There was some commentary interpreting what it meant to have these being used, and I'd be really interested in your thoughts on that. And I also wonder what you think it says about us as a society today that his music continues to be sung. Certainly something that's changed since the last coronation in the 1950s is that music with a Latin text, music that was explicitly Catholic when it was composed, is something that's acceptable in more public services. It's not seen as something esoteric. It's not seen as something politically problematic, which it certainly was in Byrd's time, and was even into the 20th century. There was a kind of taboo, I think, in cathedrals about singing in Latin. That was something slightly problematic. And even well into the 20th century, you have some of the most famous works by Byrd. The sheet music, the copies that people sang from, they still had an alternate text in English. Just last month, I was singing in a choir with some people, and we had this copy of music by Byrd. And underneath the Latin words, there were English words. And the young singer next to me, she said, do people actually sing this in English? Why would anyone want to sing this in English? Why are these words here? And I got to talk with her about, yes, until almost within living memory, this would have been a taboo to sing masses or motets in Latin that stood for something politically, stood for the bad old days almost. And I think to have that sort of openness to something that Byrd composed to the larger tradition, to something that had this continuity, even with English music before the Reformation, when composers wrote these Latin masses all the time, I think that's something that Byrd would have appreciated. And I think it's wonderful that at the coronation, they sang both a movement from this four-part mass, which was originally composed for these very underground, these very clandestine services, and also an English anthem, the Preventus, O Lord, which Byrd almost certainly would have written for the Chapel Royal, so very much for the context in which it was being sung at the coronation. So we have very much a sense that the choice of Byrd represents the king's desire for a demonstration of ecumenical faith in that service, and also that represents our society's sense of toleration towards people of different faiths. Toleration is almost too mild a word, a welcoming, a sense of inclusion. And how wonderful that these two pieces of music, and indeed all of Bird's work, we can now understand in this light from what you've explained to us today. 
Absolutely. I think that's something that Byrd embodied in his own career, that he was able to compose in a very difficult situation music for these different contexts, for these different faiths almost, and he was able somehow to reconcile that in his own personality as a composer, in his own life, and somehow managed to live past the age of 80, become a teacher and a mentor to a whole generation of younger English composers, and in very difficult political circumstances, somehow integrate these different sides of his life as a composer and make it all work. It's astonishing. Well, Dr. McCarthy, thank you so much for taking us through his life and his work and how it changed and giving us a sense of the context, a kind of glimpse of music over a 60-year period through his particular contribution to it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. American politics are all struggle and strategy, passion and persuasion, and so much scandal. And they always have been. I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, we're delving into Alexander Hamilton, whose bio was big enough for Broadway. From war to women and a dueling death to boot, Hamilton is a fundamental chapter of the American tale. Join me and a cast of worldly experts to meet the real Alexander Hamilton on American History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.